listening to The Adjacent Self, brought to you by the Conscious Leadership Academy at the University of San Diego. We're your hosts, Kendra and Libby, and we're going to help you explore how to step into the best version of you. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Kendra. Hi, good morning. Hi, how are you? I'm excited to be back recording. I know we had taken a little bit of a break and yes, good to be back with you. I'm really excited about today's episode because we have the lovely Christina Belknap with us. She is a licensed social worker and therapist and she's in her first year of her doctoral studies. So she'll soon be Dr. Christina Belknap, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Let's start with our word of the day. I think that my word for today is awake. I don't know if that makes sense, but I've, I worked out this morning. I had a pretty good balance. God, you're such an adult. I can't take it. Did some breathing and here I am. So I feel awake and alert. I'm very excited because I just got a text that my boyfriend set a COVID appointment for us to get our vaccine. Yeah. Yeah. I literally just, it just came in. So my word of the day is maybe I feel like freedom kind of feels appropriate because I feel like it's just all our doors are starting to open again. And I'm very excited about that. That's so awesome. That's great. I got my first one. I don't know if I told you. Oh, I don't know if I knew that. Yeah. That's exciting. Two weeks ago. So Christina, what's your word? Oh my goodness. I love words. Um, I'm going to go with joy mm. because I'm just like genuinely really excited and um, to be here and talk with both of you. So I'm going to go with, yeah, joy. Yay. Any more joy. Embrace the joy. Embrace it <laughs> when it comes. That's awesome. Well, hopefully this yeah. conversation will continue to be joyous, even though we got I, think, I so. think it will. Even Pretty though we have some harder conversations stuff. ahead. Right. We could do hard things. Yes, we, we can. can. Do. Oh, we can Glennon. do hard things. We can do the both. I know, I love Glennon. I did. I stole it from Glennon. <laughs> so much. God, I love her. I do too. I was a Peace Corps volunteer from 2013 to 2015. So I served in the Eastern Caribbean and mostly worked with um young girls in trauma recovery but also students like a local elementary school and did some teaching and like positive behavior change reinforcement um most amazing time in my life like absolutely transformative life-changing I was never the same I came back a different person plug for Peace Corps you know but Liz Gilbert so what happened was she came out with her new book Signature of All Things and I wanted to read it, but we didn't have like a bookstore. And obviously you can't do Amazon. Like you can't just like order or something. Mm-hmm. So I posted on her Facebook and I was like, I'm in the Peace Corps. I really wish I could read this book. Elizabeth Gilbert said to put my address, to message her my address. And she sent me a signed copy of Signature of All Things. Oh my God. Wow. And I almost fainted because Eat, Pray, Love was like a really important book to me, actually. Yeah. It was actually part of like, I mean, not to be super cheesy and basic, but it was like really part of my spiritual awakening. Like I read that book and I read her description of like how she felt about God, like how she felt about her spirituality. And I was like, wow, like I want to feel that. Like that sounds, you know, 
And just disclaimer, my spirituality is not religiously focused. So when I say God, God could be anything, use whatever word, you know, um, it's nonspecific. But um, got that book, took a picture with the kids with the book, and then she liked it. And then years later, this is like two years ago, she's speaking at a place in Jersey and I'm in South Philly now. So I went with a friend to hear her speak and met her and told her like, I'm that Peace Corps girl. And she said, oh my God, I remember you. And I was like, Oh, well, maybe one day we can have her on the podcast. I um, hope so Stella, for you, Libby. I'll call her up. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, please call her. Just tell her. <laughs> oh my gosh. Why not? Try it out. I feel like she's going to be my best friend. I just, <laughs> that's you know. how I felt too. I was like, we're, she's going to help me write my book. Like, she's going <laughs> to, like, I had this whole dream. I was like, she's going to be my writing mentor and I'm going to write my memoir. And it's like, we're going to be friends. And it just, you know, she'll no. do like the forward <laughs> in your book or. Yeah, yeah. Christina is full of wisdom (laughs) and a great addition to the world of writing. (laughs) Why not speak it into existence? Speak it into existence. It's manifested. Manifest it. All right. Well, Christina, I think you dove a little bit into your background (laughs) in your story. Um, And I know you mentioned you worked in the Peace Corps. And we're talking today with it being Women's History Month about women, women empowerment. And I think also things that a lot of women are struggling with in this day and age. Could you tell us a little bit more about your background and what led you to being here? Well, in 1986, I was born. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) So uh, let's see. So 2000, (laughs) take it real far back. Um, All the way. So I would say, and Liz, this is when, I mean, this is when we had met back in uh, Georgia State. Yeah. So like 2000, I, re- I distinctly remember like 2009 walking on campus and seeing a table, like the, I guess it was like a volunteer fair or something. And there was a table for Partnership Against Domestic Violence, which is an organization in Atlanta that serves women and children fleeing domestic violence in their homes. And like there's a safe house shelter and a crisis line and, you know, the social workers and sort of a whole thing around it. And I remember seeing it and just knowing that I wanted to work with women and girls, you know, and Glennon talks about this too. When she talks about like finding your purpose, mm-hmm. which is its own, we could do a whole episode on just purpose, but she really talks. Uh, it's really beautiful the way that she talks about it, which is like, um, and it may not be her quote, but it's something about like where the, the world's deepest hunger and your greatest joy meet or something like that. Meaning like, you know, I just really felt a pull to always work with women and girls, probably partly because I am a woman and girl. That's how I identify. And so, um, you know, my experience likely informed my, I think once you make it through your own experiences, a lot of people have a path that leads them to then look back and sort of help other people with those experiences. I didn't have an experience with domestic violence myself, but I watched it mm-hmm. and, you know, in my own family. So I was very passionate from a young age about, um, you know, just empowerment. I think in general, like it, this is what Glennon says, or she talks about like, what breaks your heart? Like, do like, that's who you're meant to help. What breaks your heart? And that was always like, what broke my heart? That's what breaks my heart is women and girls who like hate themselves, who hate their bodies, who are told to hate their bodies, who are abused and, and stuck and can't leave who are manipulated, who, I mean, there's just, it goes on and on and on. 
that was where it really started for me. And I volunteer now at this time, I, if you would have told me I was going to be a therapist, I would have laughed at you. <laughs> I would have been like, that's funny. I used to, like, my yeah, right. grandmother used to tell me like, you'd be a great counselor. And I was like, don't curse me like that. Like, no, I don't like, I don't want that life. I want to be a musician. Yeah, you're like, my music career is exploding. I'm trying. Yeah, it's exploding. Everybody knows who I am. No, nobody knew who I was. So at that time, I really didn't know. I just was like, well, this will be good on my resume or whatever. It's a good job. But it really impacted me. And I worked on the crisis line. Um, I did overnight shifts. I was often like the only person in the building. Got a really uh, solid (laughs) um, on the ground training of like, working in chaos, which to be honest with you is like the thread of my career. I really uh, thrive and respond well to chaos and in chaotic, highly traumatic with highly, you know, traumatic content or traumatic environments. So uh, of course, where I went next later down the line after Peace Corps, I went to grad school um, at the University of Pennsylvania and I started working in addiction and trauma. So that was just like another layer still with, I actually worked directly with, um, just long-term women's treatment for a long time and then worked with like men and women. But yeah, that was, uh, been, that's been a huge part of my life really for like six years is working with that intersection of, you know, trauma, mental health, addiction, and they are intersected. Um, nothing works in isolation, you know, uh, I would never define addiction for somebody because I myself don't identify as an addict, but mm-hmm. I do identify as having healed and been through the process of healing. And I, I think that that has a lot of parallels. I think that one thing that I, I wanted to touch on that you, you'd mentioned before was kind of the intersection of abuse and addiction and trauma and right how all these things sort of oftentimes one leads to the other or they sort of all intermesh together. And I'd love to talk about kind of how that, what is that cycle? And and maybe we can kind of get into the cycle of violence and the cycle of abuse as well. Mm-hmm. You're in this uh, work long enough. I think you recognize a lot of patterns. So like for me, I think a lot of this is about, about patterns and about you know, our beliefs about sort of life and, and ourselves. I mean, something just like, you know, feeling loved. Uh, someone could be extremely loving to me, right? Just telling me they love me verbally, showing up, like doing all the things. But if I inherently don't believe I'm worthy of love, I'm not going to receive it. Mm-hmm. Like it's going to be, it's just going to hit a wall. Like it won't matter. You could tell me a thousand times if I don't believe if I'm not, if my belief isn't in line and congruent with that, then it can't be let in. Uh Right. So a lot of, um, I mean, there's so many patterns that you see. And I think the cycle of abuse, one of the biggest myths is that it happens to weak women, Uh right? That's like one of the biggest myths and one of the biggest, um, you know, failures, I think, is that we always say, why didn't she leave? Um, You know, and again, watching this up close, like, not gonna lie, it was really frustrating as a kid, right? To be like, why are you doing this again? Same similar thing with addiction, right? Like, why would you do something that you know hurts you? Mm -hmm. And it's, it the reason is because it's very complex. It's not that simple. 
right? Now, this is my philosophy, again, not speaking for all people who have experience of addiction, but avoidance, you know, is that, is that a way of coping? Is that a way of numbing? Is mm-hmm. it a way of um, not dealing with trauma? Like, is it escapism? Is it just compulsion? Is it just the conditioning? I mean, the brain does crazy things with addiction. Like, if the longer you use, like, the less likely you are to feel simple joy of, like, a sunset or, like, a pretty day, or it really messes with your levels of, like, uh, joy and being present. Yeah. But, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Did you have something to say? Well, I was going to say, like, I know a lot of addicts, too, talk about how, like, they're so anxious or depressed or, you know, the feelings that they have are so overwhelming. And they know that if they just have one drink, it's, it's like self-medication, right? It's like, I know that if I drink, then then the feelings that I have will go away. Well, you're making a great so point because sick. one of the one of the biggest things was like uh, that I used to talk about with with people, and this is like a like a tolerance issue, right? Like, how much distress can I tolerate? Mm-hmm. And for a lot of folks who struggle with addiction, but it, you know, and again, addiction doesn't have to just be substances. It could be gambling. It could be mm-hmm. sex. It could be, yeah. um, by the way, control. Like, let's mm-hmm. talk about you know the cycle of violence. That's about that's about power. You know, uh, abuse, any abuse in an intimate relationship is ultimately about power and one person having power and dominance over another person and being terrified to lose that power. Mm. And they feel safe by by hanging on to that control. And if they start to feel like they're losing the control, then they feel anxious. Mm -hmm. So they have to do something to get it back, you know, quotes. But uh, that tolerance, what, what I found over the many years uh, working with, um, by the way, incredible people. I mean, these, these people, I, I feel honored to have served them. I think that there's some of the most people who go through, to me, it's like a holy journey, you know, yeah. like a real sacred journey, because it's like, oh, my God, you have to face yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, how many people really face yourself like that? Like, you have to go to the depth of your suffering and then, like, dig your way out. That's an incredible, like, that's an incredible thing. And if you could say yes to that, you, you're a totally different person when you come out. And most of the time, nine out of 10 times, that person's going to turn around and help another addict, Mm -hmm. you know, with their story. Um, But what I found most of all was just this incredibly, 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 like minimal, almost non-existent tolerance for distress. Like you'd have a group of women. Oh, man. If I could just like have done one thing, it would have been to like teach these women how to love themselves and each other. Like yeah. that was the thing that was so hard to watch um, with the women's unit. It always had a reputation for like being like the worst, like crazy. Oh my God, they're crazy. And they're like cursing each other out and they're fighting and they're, you know, all these things. But, like, why do you think that is? Number one, we're not taught to have good female friendships. No. We're taught mm-hmm. to compete with each other. Right. You know, these women, um, like most people are dealing with what we would call like complex trauma, which is, it's not one single incident. It's sort of like, if you've ever heard of the ACE scores, this is a good example where like adverse childhood experiences, like if you had an alcoholic parent or if you had a loss or if you had neglect or if you like all these things that sort of contribute over time, like to this corroding just over a long period of time. And, um, you know, it took like one eye roll from another female and we were off like mm-hmm. to the races. Like it was like one girl who'd be like, 
while someone was sharing and like all hell breaks loose. But it's not because they're crazy. It's because there's no stress tolerance. There's no ability to be in the discomfort of the conflict of someone judging you. Like if someone sighs or they're rolling their eyes, they're like judging you while you talk. Me who I am now, having done over 15 years of work on myself, that wouldn't bother me. I'd be like, that's a you problem. Right. Yeah. Like, like that has nothing to do with me. I'm not picking it up. It's not mine. I know my worth. You don't determine it. Like it wouldn't, it wouldn't affect me. But me 15 years ago, that might, that might hurt. Mm-hmm. I might have taken that in, you know, as so and and I think too with a lot of women like with self-love, which is such a huge, massive topic and such a huge, massive challenge. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, that idea of learning to what your own truth is of who you are, so that some you don't take on someone else's truth about you. Like yeah. if you like almost like if you're an empty cup, like you just take whatever comes at you. You're mm-hmm. like, maybe I am this or that or a horrible person. But like if you really know who you are, like you've really done that work, you're very clear on what you are and what you're not. Yeah. And those kinds of feedback, like they just don't affect you. Yeah. Like these women, these women were so reactive and so raw and so wounded. And it just took nothing to throw them off. Um, you know, and if I had a whiteboard, which I do, but it's full of writing already. <laughs> um, is I would, I used to draw like a scale from zero to 10. And I was like, if you are always at an eight, like if you're, if you just live at an eight stress level, then it takes very little to throw you over. Yeah. Like, but if you live at like a zero one, your, t- your stress tolerance is you can handle a lot more and be resilient to that stress. This idea of uh, stress tolerance um, is also really attached to like, and our sense of self is attached to like, do we take healthy risk? Yeah. Like, are we more likely to be feel connected, you know, with others? Can we, can we tolerate, I mean, think about like a first date or Mm -hmm. like, like with a good person, Mm -hmm. but you're still like wrecked with anxiety. Mm -hmm. Can you handle that? And there'll be some people who can't like, Mm -hmm. that's like you, but to tolerate like this idea of tolerating stress in a a healthy stress is, um, is a huge deal. A huge part, I think of like, uh, I don't know, growing, like making different choices, healing, like learning who you are. It's such, such a big part. I think that the first thing that kind of came up for me, and I think that we would be, we would, we would mess up terribly if we didn't touch on this, but sort of how do you start that work on yourself? If you're in a place where like you're listening to this and you're like, oh my God, I live at an eight. I don't know. Like, where do I start? You know, like, what do we do? Oh my how God. do I get to one? This yeah. is a magical question. This is a magical question. This is where like, um, and again, to clarify, like I'm a very spiritual person. It's a huge part of my life, but it is not religious. Yeah. And I, I think that everybody, you know, like God is going to speak to you in the language that most you'll most likely hear. Like that's to me, there's, there is no one right avenue. And, you know, a lot of folks aren't religious or spiritual at all. Like they don't just don't believe in God. So, but it's really hard for me to talk about self-development without talking about spirituality. And that's because for me, that was my doorway to this idea of like inner knowing Mm-hmm. Um, that there was even an inner world was like new information to me because I think when we're young and especially if you experience trauma and you're sort of very wounded and 
you know, all the other things. Oh my God, I was so angsty and angry in my twenties. For me to talk about this idea of self work and inner work without talking about spirituality, because for me, that was my doorway. Mm -hmm. And it was a doorway for me that was filled with things like, you know, so, so much of it is like integrity and figuring out like your values and like living in line. Like Carolyn Mace is one of like my main sort of life teacher. A lot of books, a lot of different things. She's incredible. A lot of talks, great TED talk. And she talks a lot about this idea of living like in congruence with who you are. So the idea being like the, the farther you are from being congruent and in line with who you really are, the more in pain you're in kind of idea. For me, this inner work, I mean, honestly, it's also being where you are and like being willing to, to be in your suffering, like mm-hmm. to a certain degree, because the only way out is through. There yeah. is no easy way. If you want to heal something, you have to walk through it. Now, having said that, I wouldn't be a good therapist if I didn't say also you should have support while doing that. Right. Yeah. And you know, like people around you, like, I'm not saying like, go jump in the deep end, like just go for it. You should go. There's a difference between like emotional flooding. Like, if, like a lot of people used to think that like, if they just fall apart, that they're healing. There's a difference between like emotional flooding. Like you are now, you need to step back now out of the pool of water and like contain your emotions. Now, now it's about containment. So it's like this dance between sort of like uh, surrender. There's a, there's a favorite word, like surrendering to the truth of, of your suffering so that you can move through it and like harvest the wisdom and, and this containment. So like knowing when like you've hit your, like, I need to come up for air now. Like, okay, it's time to come up for air. I mean, at this point in my life, I, I really implicitly trust myself, which 100% I didn't always feel. But like now today, if I were to like feel an emotion, if I were to like feel overwhelmed or break down or like I would just let myself, I would give myself the space to do that. Mm-hmm. And then I wouldn't. And, and really, I don't judge that as bad. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't like feel that and think like, oh, my God, I'm not OK. I'm just like, oh, here's a, I'm human. Here's yeah. here's a here's a feeling that's coming to the surface that needs to be felt. So I'm going to make space for it to be felt. We judge emotions as bad. Mm-hmm. We're like, sadness is bad. And anger is really anger bad. Is bad. And <laughs> I don't want to feel depressed ever. And I don't ever want to feel ashamed. And I don't ever want to feel like I've had a bad day. But I want to feel joy and connectivity and belonging and excitement and gratitude. And, you know, Brené Brown does this great thing where she's like, you can't numb the bad feelings without mm-hmm. also numbing the good feelings. Yeah. Like, you cannot pick and choose. So ultimately, life is this, uh, you know, it's very like the Tao. It's very like the light and dark. It's very like everything, everything coexists. And, and that's also the thing is that I think a lot of people misinterpret these, these pivotal moments or they avoid it. They're like, oh, I don't want to fall apart. Well, maybe you need to fall apart. Yeah. Like maybe you need to fall apart and everything needs to be shattered so that you can rebuild something. The other part is like trusting yourself. Mm-hmm that you can, you'll survive. Like how many women in my groups had a breakdown in the middle of group and I would see physically in their body, they would try to stop it. Like their throat would get tight, their shoulder. And I would say, 
relax your body right now. Allow for the moment. And I would just, I wouldn't touch them. That's the other thing women love to do. As soon as someone cries, they love to run over to the girls crying and like hold them. And I'm like, mm-hmm. don't touch her. Don't yeah. touch her. Let her experience that she can fall apart and get to the other side. Mm-hmm. And that's too like the most, I think for women, I mean, not, not, I mean, for men too, I, uh, you know, we don't teach men to feel that that's a whole nother episode, but for women, you know, it's like this idea that like, I think so many women are afraid that, that they'll never make it back from that emotion. Like if they really let themselves feel it, you're, you can survive that. And I think that that's the biggest thing. If we're talking about like empowerment and healing or like domestic violence or intimate partner um, violence relationships or like all these things, it's like, you can survive that. Like you could do hard things, Glenn Doyle, right? Like that's going to hurt like hell. And I'm not going to lie to you about that, but you will come out to the other side if you keep moving. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's the thing is just trusting, like I can break down and I can feel feelings um, knowing that they all belong. They all have a place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that they're all temporary. I think too, is, is something that they're all temporary. Yeah. So that's a ticket. Um, what right now I'm putting together with a colleague, a self-compassion workshop oh my gosh, um, yes. for mental or like for help mental helpers um, uh, currently who are graduate students. And as we're going through this, like I'm at a place in my journey where I'm also working on but self-worth and self-compassion yes. and it coming apart is kind of perfectly. And every time I jump on with my friend Tiffany and I'm like, I did an exercise that we should throw into the workshop. And she's like, yes. this is so funny how this is like working out for you. But it reminds me of um, Kristen Neff, who is like the self-compassion yes. lady yes. and how she does this she self-compassion is. break. And she wants you to acknowledge in mindfulness if you're, going through something that's difficult, like there's nothing wrong with acknowledging that you're in a moment of suffering, that you're in something that's stressful, that you're in something mm-hmm. that's painful, that you don't feel great. And then also acknowledging that it's going to be a part of your life. And I think Christina, when you said like, you have to take those good emotions with those bad emotions, it's just, you can't pick and choose. You can't, you, but it, it's not going to be a part of life. And one of my favorite parts of that, and I, I think as women, sometimes we're conditioned to believe that if we share, if we, you know, state that we need help, that the, we're not good women that can sustain. And something I love about Kristen's whole thing within the self-compassion break is that there's a shared humanity as we go through life that we all are going to experience suffering, that other people are going to feel the same that we, same way we do. And also, most importantly, that we're not alone in the suffering. I love that she said, I think I know the meditation you're talking about. And she says, yeah. we're not, you're not alone. You're not we're all alone. part of the human experience. This is what, yes. this is about being human. Yeah. Absolutely. And then she ends it. It's a three part. So that this is the moment of suffering, that suffering is a part of life that we all go through mm-hmm. it. And then mm-hmm. the last part is, may we be kind to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Because we yeah. always think like, I'm going through this hard situation. I'm going through a breakup. I'm going through a tough time in a relationship. My kids are acting up. I'm having problems at job at my job. And we forget that we still need that self-kindness and that yeah. mm-hmm. so that we can get through it. And we, I think sometimes are conditioned to choose the harder side of if I'm tough on myself, 
I'm going to make it work. If I'm tough on myself, like then I'll get through it and get to the other side. And I just don't think as women, as people, we're setting up ourselves up well if we continue to like to work ourselves in that mindset. Oh my God. I had a couple thoughts from what you said, which is understanding that you can't choose from the, from the good and the bad. And I say that in quotes, because again, if you think of this as like a building, like self-development or like the inner journey as like a building, like you start somewhere in the basement and you're like, I have to unpack all my baggage and my boxes and like my junk and yeah. the stuff I don't need and the stuff mm-hmm. I could really probably get rid of. And you have to like go through like all your memories and like your albums and you're like, oh, I didn't like that, but I have to go through this box. And you know, it's like messy. And you go to, and this is Carolyn's analogy. I'm stealing this right from her. But um, then you go to like, she, she talks about it being like a building in New York and like you're on the first floor and like there's trash on the street and you can't see very far. You don't even know like you live by like a river or felt like you can't see it. It's like loud. And she's like, but you go to the penthouse and you can see far. The air is clearer. Mm-hmm. Um, you have more space. It's quiet, but it's going to cost you more. And it's going to cost you to go up the building. It's going to cost you habits and thought processes and people like definitely going to cost you relationships yeah. It's going to cost you time because this is like a, a dedication of time. I mean, the, yeah. the discipline required to do inner work, mm-hmm. I mean, cannot be understated while being self-compassionate to your point. Like I don't meditate every day. Sometimes I don't yeah. even pray every day. Like I, like I'm very sporadic, but having the practice and having the thread and you know, that, that, that costs something. Mm-hmm. And I think when you go high enough up the building, like, so you know, the perspective of like, oh, that emotion is bad and I don't want to feel it versus like that might be like a level one feeling. I might be like you're on the street level. But if you go up to like the 20th floor, you're like, my sadness isn't good or bad. Like it's actually and then you get really high up there and you're like, it's actually all part of the richness of life. Mm-hmm. Like and you get really high up and you're like, this is actually what it is to be alive, like is to feel all of these things. Yeah. I love that analogy. It really helps me. And it helps me because when I have my own challenges, there's that I'm like, I wonder where I'm at in that building. Like I can think about it from a really reactive sort of primal ego place and like take it real personal and like think really poorly about myself as something. Or I can be like, that had nothing to do with me. That's a higher level reaction. That has nothing to do with me. I can let that go. Yeah. I know my worth. Yeah. yeah. It, it reminds me because I know you said you're spiritual. I um, identify as a Christ follower. And I, I think about how biblically, even the Bible acknowledges like there's a time for everything in Ecclesiastes. Yes. There's a time to dance, a time to heal, to yes. laugh, to build, to mourn, to cry, to embrace suffering, you know, and how many. Yes you know, different kinds of religion or spirituality embrace that there's going to be good and bad in life. And yet we still, you know, these things are thousands of years old, and we still are not necessarily learning from these past ideals and beliefs and, and sayings and, and trying to push away the narrative that we don't want to feel the bad. Mm-hmm. When My so God. many people before us have yes. experienced the ebbs and flows of life, I mean, and are trying to teach saint. us. 
every mm-hmm. saint's path has been full of torture. Like, <laughs> right. Like, like every saint has had like some trauma befall them. That yeah. Probably, I mean, I mean, and this is where it gets really tricky for me because you can't tell someone in the early stages of healing that their that their suffering is good. Mm. Like you can't like just say like you're gonna love that you're suffering later. You have to know what stage someone is in. But like again, it to me it's such a sacred gift. Like I am everything I'm saying today is because I surrendered to my own suffering and yeah. through it. That's a tough thing to say to somebody. And there's a lot of folks who would be offended by that in the trauma-informed world to be like, my trauma doesn't have to be a lesson learned. And it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And that, again, is a very personal to me, very spiritually driven idea right. of like that I got from my life. But I guess my pushback would be like, how do we make if what is healing if not making meaning of our life? Yeah. So, so how do I make meaning of something that happened to me or someone else that was so unspeakable and atrocious? Like, how do you make meaning of that then? Mm-hmm. That almost sets someone up to stay in the suffering and like not leave it, to just be in it and to just keep pointing to it and being like, this is awful. It is awful. And how am I going to make meaning of that for myself? Like, what is, what is my story? Yeah. Like, where do I go from there? And what, how do I, how am I going to look at that experience? Because I don't want it to defeat me. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. But like, let's not be under the illusion that the, that staying in the hatred will ultimately serve you best. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. ultimately, right. ultimately, that's going to take like, you know, again, Carolyn, my main, my main lady will talk about like how stuff, um, like how we hemorrhage power, how we like, so like, just imagine like if like 30% of my day, I'm thinking about how much I hate someone or like how much I'm blaming them or 30% of my week or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like every time I engage in that, I'm hemorrhaging, like, like I have a wound and like hemorrhaging out life energy or, or just like how personal power that I could be containing and directing elsewhere. Yeah. Right. You are going to be most yourself empowered, centered, grounded, present, uh, joyful, engaged and connected in your life. If you are not living from a place of, you know, where you're hemorrhaging out Mm -hmm. parts of you to hang on to something that's in the past. Yeah. 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 Wow. I love thinking about where I place my power. There was a meditation I did a while ago, it was like a guided one I found probably on like, I don't know, insight timer or something. And basically what you do is you recall all the places where you've given your energy and where you've, so the friend that pissed you off yesterday or whatever the thing is that your boss at work, whoever it is that you've kind of expelled energy into you recall, you think about all the places your energy is spent and you recall the ones that you feel like aren't worth it. And obviously there are people like your grandmother that you want to give your energy to. And so you let them keep that energy. But when I did that and I kind of thought about where am I spending my thoughts and my time and my energy, I was able to recall so much more of my power and then focus on the things that meant the most to me after it, like literally minutes after the meditation, I was like, wow, 
I feel so much more alive and awake and it and powerful than I did right before I did this. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, that kind of stuff always feels a little hokey pokey to me, but like, no, you're calling, then you do it and you're like, you're calling Oh, yourself back to yourself. Right. I yeah. mean, that's a profound thing. And, and, you know, this is where it gets <laughs> tricky because this is stuff that like is so real, but you can't really offer proof for it, mm-hmm. other than like, if you experience it, cause it's, this is the unseen stuff, yeah. but yeah. To me, it doesn't make it any less real. You know, um, because just because it's not something that we can like see and touch, like physically, you know, that's really real. Like, yeah, you have, you have Olympic athletes that train part of their training every day is to imagine they like an out for an hour, their routine, just imagine themselves doing the routine perfectly. Like they get all the little sensory, like get up to you feel the bar, you get on the bar, you do like they have to, that's part of their training. And it's been shown neurobiologically to create more successful performance. Yeah. Because the brain doesn't know the difference between an imagined experience and a real one. So if I sit down and do a visualization that I'm somewhere in a tropical rainforest and I hear a little bubbling brook and I, this and I, and I'm breathing slow, like my body is going to physically react as if I'm there. Mm Yeah. The brain's really powerful. Like visualization is really powerful. You words are powerful. Ritual is powerful. You know, saying like I call myself back to myself. That's powerful. Yeah. 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 I think when I started kind of dabbling in meditation, and I know Kendra and I have talked a lot about meditation on this podcast. And when I first started kind of dabbling in meditation, I wasn't really sure what I was getting myself into. But the more that I meditate, the more that I realize the the real importance and the value and the huge healing effect that it has on you. And that's why I encourage people to meditate. And I think a lot of people have, they struggle with it because they're like, I don't know how I can't sit still for an hour. Or, you Ooh. know, I'm like, well, that's oh, a lot. Like God. I can't sit still for an hour. For no, speaking, <laughs> of, speaking of when I was working with women um, in treatment, this was, was like another thing that was really like always brought up is like, I can't sit still. And I'm like, be at the challenge that is currently presented to you. Yeah. So if you can't sit still because you can't tolerate, you know, cause a lot of times when people say that they mean like, when I finally sit still, everything I don't want to feel rushes to the mm. surface. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that's why I can't sit still. So like, there's mm-hmm. always like the thing, but there's the thing under the thing, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, Oh, I can't sit still. And I'm like, can you not sit still? Or can you not tolerate like what you feel when you sit still? Cause that's a different thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so again, we go back to how do you start this inner work is like your homework is to go and sit still and tolerate what you feel for five minutes. And after you do it, you're going to do the X, Y, Z, you know, exercise, like you're going to hug yourself or you're going to tap because tapping is another sort of easy nervous system regulator, or you're going to go run around the block or you're going to call a friend or you're going to like, you're going to follow it up with something, but you're going to stretch the muscle of your tolerance mm-hmm. for that. And like, it is a, it, a learnable thing. Yeah. And it's a buildable thing too. So yeah. you can start with five minutes and build to six and seven. And, and also the really beautiful thing about meditation is that it's not necessarily even how long you do it. It's the frequency of having the routine of doing it. Mm-hmm. And so what you're doing is you're getting your body, the signals to kind of drop into that meditative state and you're building that 
uh, neural pathway, I guess, yes. to help you yes. sink into that space. So then when you are triggered or you are in that high flight mode or you are stressed out at work or whatever, your brain and your body knows where to go to calm back down again right. because it's done it over and over and over again. Same thing with like anything else you learn, right? Like driving your car to work the first day you're like heavily reliant on that GPS. Yeah. Oh my God. There's so much I want to say from what you just said. That's so important. Like number one, and I hope people feel hope from this. Like the brain is 100% malleable. Yeah. So like the pathways that you have made thus far in your life can be changed. Yep. yep. Like, and that's the thing that's really hard for people who are like, well, what if I can't change? I'm like, you can, but to your point, it takes like consistency Yeah. because yeah. you're building a new pathway. Right. So, you know, just like you, to your point, you have a lot of negative associations, you can build positive associations. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the cool thing about the brain too, is that it's, these pathways are very physical. Mm -hmm. And so think of like a horse walking through a field of tall grass. At first, they're going to kind of build this trail that they have. And let's say then they want to go the other way. They're going to have to carve a new trail and that original trail will start to fill back up with grass again. Your brain is the same way. Yeah. So that when I started to learn that and realize that like, it's a physical thing that happens in your brain, Mm -hmm. it made it feel, I mean, obviously more tangible. Right. And so then it was like, oh, I can do this because it's a scientific, tangible thing that happens. And my, then my power to like, do it felt more sh- like I have more strength than doing this thing. Cause mm-hmm. I, I understand the science behind it. Yes. Yes. And I think that's really big for people because that feels logical. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. And I think with all the topics we're talking about, um, it's so important to notice the like holistic nature of how our body, like, like your body, your emotions and your mind, like don't work an isolation of one another, like your emotions are stored in the body somehow. Like, and this is where we get into like PTSD and, you know, panic attacks and anxiety. And like, those are, that's, that's a very somatic, like body response. Mm -hmm. And that's because some, some of your emotions and your trauma, like live in the, the tissue of your body. And in the memory the body, you know, the mind body memory, like those pathways and can be triggered by like a smell or a feeling or like nausea or, and then suddenly you're like transferred back to when you're like, you know, nine years old. Yeah. I'm thinking about this because I'm, we're actually studying, studying neural pathways and neuroplasticity right now. And as you guys are talking and we're talking about like developing new habits and I know like I've done this, like, good morning. I love you thing to develop this (laughs) self-love factor for myself. And this is going to sidetrack us slightly or maybe pull us to another point. But I'm thinking about how with everything going on surrounding violence against women this past past month mm-hmm. and the defense that men have used to yeah. be like, well, you know, we are raised to think of women this way. And why, why do we have to, <laughs> you know, basic things even as like seeing them as equal to get pay, but like see them and not comment on their body and I'm like but the science baby you can train your mind to not think that way you're just making the choice men can be very driven and tunnel focused when they want to be when they when it feels relevant to them and I think that that's anybody right if it's relevant to me it's empathy that makes you do the work to do something that maybe isn't relevant directly to you but to people you care about 
mm-hmm. like the women in your life, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, even yeah. though you may not feel like you understand it, you know, being willing to to do the that reprogramming. I mean, that's like love. So putting someone else above yourself, putting someone else's needs. And like being willing to say that like maybe your truth isn't the whole truth. Like maybe yeah. your story isn't, maybe you just have a chapter of, of the story. Mm. And like, are you willing to consider that that's not the full picture? Yeah. You know? And that's mm-hmm. too is like a white woman, right? Like versus um, a woman of color, like versus like, I don't have the full picture to recognize yeah. that like I have a piece, which is, you know, a white cisgender you know, female identifying, you know, the middle class, you know, whatever, all the different identify identifiers you could have. That's a part of the story. You know, I don't have the whole picture. And I think that's really vital to understand. And I think people in, in positions of privilege are just less likely to recognize that. Yeah. Well, and that kind of makes me think too about like, Kendra, you sort of brought up what's been going on um, lately, but sort of how like legislation gets written and and how it it really oftentimes fails women women aren't even in the room no yeah they're not even in the conversation yeah no and so like make decisions that are really truly for the best interests of other people and and stepping outside of themselves to think about like what does this law really mean it's like Mm -hmm. why is it that we have to have these huge cases where outrage happens because the law was written poorly to begin with right. absolutely yeah and it, it's because those laws were created through the eyes white of men. white white men, men. White yeah men. <laughs> they i mean if they're not thinking of women they're not thinking of persons of color they're not thinking of the lgbt lgbt plus community they're thinking yeah. of white men and and so having to think about you know a sexual assault case and i think even Libby, we were talking about the other day how it was specifically like rape was considered penis and vagina. Mm-hmm. And so that mm-hmm. left out a whole host of other things that could oh happen, God. right? And then, we and, get into, and then we get into like consent, right? Mm-hmm. I think so many times with especially young girls and women, but like women of any age, there's like with intimacy, like with sexual intimacy, there's such a cultural pressure. Like it's so, att- like, I just think that there's so much pressure and it makes women less likely to um, ask for what they want, Mm -hmm. to ask for like use of protection, to use boundaries, to say no, Mm -hmm. it becomes a blur. And then we get into like sexual assault and, and (laughs) power and dominance and all these, I mean, there's so much to think about, but it drives me a little nuts because Mm -hmm. I have a lot of young females that I've mentored over the years who think that there's something wrong with them because that's not their life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, don't follow that prescripted sort of like very conditioned image. Yeah. And they start feeling like, well, something's wrong with me. And I just talked to someone um, recently. She's an undergrad and I've known her for a really long time. um, A younger girl. And she, and I just reiterated to her, like, please, you know, she's like, well, I've never really had, I've never had a boyfriend. I never had, I never had that. And I was like, please, please, please don't think that there's something wrong with you. Mm -hmm. You know, like that is just because there's one story of like being young or cool or whatever uh, and it leaves you out of it. doesn't mean that there's not a lot of other stories right yeah and it 
and it I mean I was that girl in college in my dorms where it felt like I was you know what was wrong with me because I wasn't dating actively or you know having sex and doing the supposed things because I grew up on you know one tree hill where their parents were consistently absent which made no sense and they were all shacking up together which God, was, I look back on these shows like the OC. Yes. Like, like, and I'm like, it's just such a bizarre painting of, re- of reality that's like not true. I knew yeah. no one whose parents left for months at a time. But, like everyone's <laughs> yeah. pretending like that's their life. Yeah. And, and it's not. Like this. It's, yeah. And it also, I think with those shows, it taught us that if you were having sex, especially as women, as, as you brought up, like, we are not trained to ask for the things we need. Oh my and God. those shows like they were 16 and having sex and they looked so satisfied that- Oh my God, yeah, know, it's so easy. I, that must so be easy, what the truth simple, is. And it's so fast and simple and easy. Right, and yeah. And just stay there and like snuggle and everything's great. And it was mm-hmm. like no problem at all. And it was comfortable for everyone. And, yeah. you know, we didn't talk about anything, but it was somehow okay. Yeah, <laughs> like, everyone was fine yeah. after. Like it was a great experience for all. When you, like, everyone's true. happy. But then also like in college, like, and I, and I know we talked about this before, but I felt not desirable because as a woman, I was supposed to have the college experience and be dating guys and get a boyfriend and, you know, like be talking and flirting and doing the pajama parties and all the things. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, in my sweatpants, reading a book in my dorm room, but still felt, you know, because of outer perception and not knowing this statistic that you just gave now, but that everyone else was doing something that I was supposed to be doing and missing out on and something was wrong with me in that. Yeah. That I really, I really hurt for people for that because I think that if you don't have, I don't know if you don't have, if you're not doing your own sort of work or have your own support or, or access to people that feel like, like your kind of people, like it's a, that's a really dangerous road. Like that's where you get into people like, saying yes to things they don't want to say yes to mm-hmm. because they feel like that's how they're going to feel worthy yeah. or, or, or that they belong or that, yeah. you know, and I think that's such a thing for younger women is like learning, you know, what to sacrifice so that you don't sacrifice yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's such a part of the journey is like, just like now in my life, I'm so just unapologetically vigilant about like what I let in, what I keep out, what I say yes to, what I say no to. Like I I have a friend who I said to her once, it's like, you're like really permeable, like everything that's in the air around you, you're like taking in and that's exhausting. Mm -hmm. That's exhausting. You have to like, to like, I can't live that way. Like they're they're you know, like, again, I'm really, really specific about what I take in to myself. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. We've really enjoyed having this conversation and we'd want to continue it. So stick around for the next episode next week where we continue to talk with Christina. And if you want to follow what we're doing, find us on Instagram and Twitter at USDCLA or to be a part of the conversation, email us at the adjacent self at San Diego.edu. We can't wait to hear from you.